Our second reading this morning, am I on? Our second reading this morning is from uh, Acts chapter 2. I will read verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, People of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this was what was uttered by through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit... And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would, by the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds and soften our hearts to receive your eternal word. We pray that uh, by the power of your Spirit, we would be bound one to another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that our prayers and our songs would rise uh, before your throne as incense, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, our scripture readings this morning make three points that some of us might have some trouble with, three points that some of us might find controversial, and those points are this. Number one, that we are living in the last days. Number two, that some prophets are women. And number three, that sometimes God changes his mind. This week we continue our series of sermons through the Acts of the Apostles. Our reading from Acts chapter 2 is the first part of the first of ten sermons that appear in this book. Peter is preaching in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So this is the very first Christian sermon. The very first sermon in the history of the church. The day of Pentecost is the birthday of the church, and this is the inaugural sermon of the church of Jesus Christ. And what does Peter declare on the first sermon of the Christian error? Peter announces that the day of the Lord has arrived. Peter announces that the last days are here. Now, Peter's claim is controversial only because of a theology that emerged in the 19th century called dispensationalism. While dispensationalism was a new theology, it gained widespread influence in evangelical churches in the 20th century. The Baptist and Assembly of God churches that I grew up in in Missouri were dispensational. 
My parents graduated from the Philadelphia College of the Bible, which is now called Cairn University, which is a dispensational school. This congregation went through its own dispensational period in the 70s. At one time, the Pew Bibles in this church were Schofield Reference Bibles. You can still find one or two of those lying around. And the Schofield Reference Bible was the single most important distribution channel for the dispensational view. That is, until Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, which took the dispensational theology and made it into a series of adventure novels. Those of you who are a certain age might remember Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Raise your hand if you ever saw or had a copy of that book. I was terrified by it. It was published in 1970, and that book became, next to the Bible, the largest selling non-fiction book on record. Dispensational theologians are very interested in the last days, uh, and they spend time studying scripture and reading the newspaper, looking for signs of the last, that the last days are upon us, that the end times are near, that the day of the Lord is just around the corner. And so it might give pause to someone with a dispensational outlook to hear Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, the very first sermon in the age of the church, a sermon preached around the year 33 AD, to hear Peter declare in that sermon that his day, that his time was the last days, was the day of the Lord. Peter wasn't looking for the day of the Lord or the last day way out in the future someplace 2,000 years distant. He was living in the middle of it. That's the upshot of his sermon. Now let me explain. Before the day of Pentecost, a group of about 120 people who would become the church of Jesus Christ, they are gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. This seems to have been their regular meeting place. Maybe one of them owned it. Maybe they were renting it. But they were there in that room waiting. And they were waiting for something they didn't even know what they were waiting for. But Jesus had told them to wait. He told them to wait in Jerusalem. And so they stuck together there in that upper room and they spent time in prayer. And then on the day of Pentecost, all heaven breaks loose. A mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, and the people gathered in that room burst out of that room and they begin to proclaim the news of Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem and people from all over the world hear the gospel in their own language. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, you can pick up a copy of the sermon on CD in the back of the sanctuary. Well, as you can imagine, this miracle caused quite a stir. It caught people's attention. Regardless of what the message was, the fact that the message was understood by people from all over the world, well, that was a miracle that you just couldn't ignore. And it wasn't only the language thing that was astounding to the people who saw this. It was also the exuberant power of these people. The word dunamis, the Greek word where we get Dynamic and dynamite is the word that's used again and again in the New Testament to describe how people behave when they are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's usually translated as power, dunamis. People who were shy and retiring suddenly became bold as lions. People who were uneducated 
suddenly began speaking with great intelligence and authority. Some of the Holy Spirit hymns that we sing are all, I don't know, kind of peaceful and gentle and ethereal. But when I read the Acts of the Apostles, I imagine that the soundtrack of the Holy Spirit is going to be a blasting trumpet and a resounding kettle drum or maybe rounds of cannon fire like we hear at the end of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. I don't doubt but that those 120 Holy Ghost-filled people caused quite a commotion, an uproar. They were bold and they were fearless and onlookers thought that they were drunk even though it was just 9 o'clock in the morning. They, it must have looked like Mardi Gras on Bourbon Street, complete pandemonium. And in the midst of that pandemonium, the Apostle Peter stands up and he begins to preach. The very first sermon in the history of the church, we read in verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up as a voice and addressed them. Now there are two things that I want you to notice. Leave that up on the screen for us. Two things I want you to notice in this, this little snippet. First, Peter stands with the other eleven apostles. This is a visual sign That Peter speaks with apostolic authority, with the authority of the whole church. And second, Peter lifted up his voice. Now this is the only time in the whole Bible that this word is used regarding someone who's speaking. And what it means is that Peter was shouting. There was such a hubbub. There was such a commotion in the city. There was so much noise that Peter had to shout to be heard. And Peter, the big burly fisherman who never went to seminary, he didn't have any fancy training like the Apostle Paul, but I can imagine that he had powerful lungs and he was certainly filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and he began to preach, taking the prophet Joel as his scripture text for the day. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. The first part of Peter's sermon, the very first sermon in the history of the church, is an explanation of the hubbub and the commotion going on in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. 120 followers of Jesus all out in the streets preaching about Jesus and having their message heard in every language. Skeptics say, oh, they're just drunk. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, realizes that what's going on is precisely what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. That God would pour out His Spirit on all kinds of people, on both men and women, and that they would prophesy. Peter is saying, people of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, we are in the last days. Our Old Testament reading this morning was taken from Joel chapter 2. That's the passage that... Peter quotes, it is a messianic prophecy, it is a prophecy about the coming day of the Lord, it is a prophecy about the last days. There are similar prophecies about the day of the Lord, about the last days in Isaiah, in Amos, 
and in Hosea. And what all of these prophecies about the last days have in common are two parts. They contain a warning and they contain a promise. There is a warning about the judgment that is to come and there is a promise about redemption. As I've said in other sermons from this pulpit, the day of the Lord is always a two-edged sword. It is a day of fear and dread for those who are lost, and it is a day of rescue and celebration for those who are saved. And between those two parts, in the Joel passage, there is an invitation to repentance. The word of judgment we see at the beginning of our reading from Joel, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The King James translation grabs that last verse this way. The day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? That's the day of the Lord. That's the end times. All prophecies about the end times have this threatening darkness. They are terrible and they are terrifying. But those threats and warnings are always joined with a promise of redemption. And we see that a little further down in Joel chapter 2. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. What a beautiful vision that is. That too is the day of the Lord. Now, I know there are some people who are afraid to read the book of Revelation or to read certain parts of the book of Daniel because they're filled with such terrible and terrifying visions, visions of God's judgment and visions of God's vengeance. But if you skip over God's judgment, you also miss out on God's redemption. And that would be a tremendous loss. Now, in all of the many prophecies... Regarding the day of the Lord, there is always sandwich between the two, between the judgment part and the redemption part, both of which, by the way, are about what God is going to do. Sandwich between those two parts is an invitation, an invitation to repent and to turn to God. Listen to Joel again. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. It is never God's desire to destroy the wicked. It is always his desire that we repent and return to him and that we be saved. And so God keeps offering again and again. Peter sees what's happening on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem around the year 33 AD. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, I know what's going on here. What's going on here is precisely what 
The prophet Joel said would happen in the last days that God would pour out his spirit on all kinds of people, both men and women, and that those people would prophesy. Or as we would say today, they, they, they would preach or bear witness that they would declare the word of God to the people of God. From the very first day of the church, from the church's birthday on the day of Pentecost, the church has lived in the last days. We live in the last days. We live in the day of the Lord now. Now the day of the Lord is not over yet and the last days are not done yet. They will come to a close when Jesus returns to gather his church to be with him. And if you're thinking that the return of Jesus is something that you don't need to be thinking about, that it's you know way off in some unforeseeable future, well, you're nuts. Because Jesus could return today. Everything is set. There's nothing left to be done. As the next to last verse in the Bible says, he who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, Jesus who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. And then the response of the church is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That should be our prayer every single day. Come, Lord Jesus. Let this be the day that you come. So point number one of this sermon is we are living in the last days. Point number two, some prophets are women. A prophet is someone who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks the word of God to the people of God. According to the prophet Joel, and then repeated by the apostle Peter, in the day of the Lord, in the last days, God will pour out his Holy Spirit on all kinds of people so that both men and women prophesy. Here's what the Bible says. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I shall pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, that women might be prophets or preachers as we call them today is controversial for two reasons. One is cultural, and one is biblical. First, in many cultures and in much of human history, public spaces have been dominated by men, and private spaces have been dominated by women. In many different cultures, men's work is outside of the home, and women's work is inside the home. The role of the prophet or the preacher is a distinctly public role. And so there is a cultural barrier in many times and places to women in that role. Now here's what I have to say about culture. Culture will not save you. Your culture will not save you. White culture will not save you. Black culture will not save you. Liberal culture will not save you. Conservative culture will not save you. All those cultures are part of a world which is passing away. And the gospel holds every culture, including your culture and my culture, in judgment. There is always a danger of people confusing their culture with God's good news. A danger of thinking that people will be saved, well, you know, if they start doing things the way that we do them. 
The gospel stands above and outside of and stands in judgment of every culture, and that includes mine, and that includes yours. My point, we don't fight about cultural issues. But we bring our own culture to the judgment seat of God's word, and we see what God has to say about how we live and how we think and about our values and about our assumptions about reality and the world. And let me say this, I've said this before, but let me say this and maybe maybe you'll hear me this time. If in your reading of the Bible, you've never had the experience of being pulled up short by some passage, by some place in scripture that disagrees with what you already think, if that's never occurred to you, then you haven't really read the Bible. Okay? You're not reading scripture if everything that you read already agrees with all of the stuff that you're bringing to scripture with your cultural presuppositions and biases. God's thoughts are above our thoughts. Even we lovely, enlightened people. And his ways are above our ways, even we who are such wonderful citizens. And that means that the Bible is deeper and truer than our political platforms. That the Bible is deeper and truer than our cultural and racial biases. Bottom line, as a preacher of the gospel, I do not care about what the culture says. Now, the second reason women prophets and women preachers is a controversial topic is biblical. Because of what the Apostle Paul writes in two passages. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the Lord also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now those two passages uh, are typically used as proof text for the belief that women cannot be prophets or preachers. The Westminster Confession, however, advises us That the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself, and therefore where there is a question about the true and full meaning of any sense, uh, full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Which means we need to understand those two passages that I just read in light of the whole counsel of Scripture. We might begin in the Old Testament, where we find that there were women Prophets, Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Esther, Huldah. Seven women prophets whose words are recorded for us in Holy Scripture. And we need also to understand these passages in light of Paul's instruction that a woman should cover her head when she does prophesy. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. In other words... Women in the New Testament church were prophesying. And Paul was telling them, when you prophesy, please cover your head. 
And then there are the various women that Paul lists in his letters, women who were involved in his ministry in an important way. For example, Junia, whom Paul refers to in this way. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Or Priscilla, about whom Paul writes, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. There are others that we could list, women who are listed as co-workers, workers, deacons. But there is also the more fundamental theological statement that Paul offers on this question in his letter to the Galatians. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And finally, we might consider the passage which is at hand from the Acts of the Apostles and its description of the baby church and what that church was doing. So first listen to how the Bible describes the 120 people who were gathered in the upper room, the 120 who were going to then become the church, the 120 who were baptized by the Holy Spirit, the 120 who went out into the streets and began to prophesy and preach. Here's what we read. This is from Acts chapter 1. We read this a couple weeks ago. They returned to Jerusalem and went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was all about 120. Now, there are a number of times in Scripture where uh, the Scripture will give a, a number of, the, of a crowd. And the number refers just to the men in the crowd. And so then you have to do some quick math to figure out, well, how many people really would have been there when you add in women and children. But in this description of the believers in the upper room, we see that it's men and women together and that they number about 120. And so it is these 120 who prophesy on the day of Pentecost. And Peter then explains their prophesying, their proclaiming news about Jesus in his own sermon by referring to the prophecy of Joel that in the last days the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all kinds of people, both men and women, and that they will prophesy. Thus in these last days, some prophets are women. Some preachers are women. All right, controversial topic number three. Have I offended anyone yet? All right, wait till you see this one. I, honestly, this one I'm picking up is actually uh, the most theologically uh, complicated. Um, and if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, we, we can. All right. I'm just going to lob this out there and we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, sometimes God changes his mind. Controversial topic number three. Sometimes God changes his mind. Our reading from Joel is a prophecy about the last days. And like other prophecies about the last days, it contains a warning and a promise. 
It warns of God's judgment and it promises God's redemption. But sandwiched between the threatened judgment and the promised redemption is a call to action, which sounds something like this. Repent. Repent immediately. Repent. I'm not kidding. Repent. While you still have time. Okay, that's that's the call to action. That's sandwiched between the threatened judgment and the promised redemption. Here's what we read in Joel chapter 2. Right after the threats and the warnings that culminate in this sentence, the day of the Lord is great and terrible, who can endure it? Right after those words, we then uh, hear this. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. What I want you to notice in that passage, and please leave that up there for a minute, are these words. Relents, turn, and relent. Because... Those are three words that are usually associated in Scripture with human action and human hearts. Those, in fact, are the words that Scripture uses for repentance. For when someone's going the wrong way, they're going away from God, and then they think better about what they're doing, and they turn around and they go back to God. Okay, Those are the words that are used in repentance. For you Bible wonks, the word is shuv in Hebrew and it's metanoia in Greek. Those words mark a change of mind and a change of direction. Typically, those words are used for people, for the conversion of people, for the repentance of people. The King James translation captures the force of these words uh, in this way, therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing Behind him. I don't know if that surprises you. To hear the scripture talking about God repenting. That God might change his mind in response to our fasting and our weeping and our mourning and our prayer. Now, I am not going to dig into the theology that underlies this. Those of you who are theological wonks knows that this issue is raised in the second chapter of the Westminster Confession. I'm happy to have that conversation uh, with you. What I want to report on is what the scriptures say. That God does respond. And that God does react to our prayers and our fasting and our repentance. Terrible, terrible threats of coming judgment. And then a call to repentance. And then beautiful promises of redemption. That's the day of the Lord as scripture describes it. What that tells me is that God will change his posture toward us if we will change our hearts 
toward him. So what's the upshot? What's the call to action for us today? Well, first, we are in the last days. We are in the last days, and we have been in the last days since the day of Pentecost, since the day that the church was born. We are in the last days, and God's judgment can fall on us at any moment. There is no reason to think that we have time to wait. We all know that we could die at any moment. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. And the moment after we close our eyes in death, the very next moment, we're going to open our eyes and be standing at God's judgment seat and have to give an account. For those who are outside of Christ, that will be a terrible day. The beginning of eternal suffering. But for those who've been united to Christ by faith, for them that's a day of sweet reunion and redemption, a day when all of the promises of Scripture are finally fulfilled. One other thing I should say is that not all of us are going to die. Some of us are going to be alive when Jesus returns. And that can happen at any moment. And when that time comes, there will again be a judgment. And there will be a separation of those who are in Christ from those who are not in Christ. And so, the call of the prophet Joel and the call of the apostle Peter are the same. Repent. Repent today and turn to Christ. Turn away from the flesh, turn away from the world, and turn to Christ. And let his righteousness become your own through faith. Peter's going to be uh, driving this point home in the rest of this sermon. You might want to read ahead. We've, we've just sort of touched on the beginning part of, of Peter's sermon. But the rest of the sermon is, is, is amazing, and we'll talk about it next week. But even in the part that we read uh, today, we close with this wonderful promise. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you been saved? It's an important question because if you have not, then you're lost. And all of the terrors of God's judgment are waiting for you. But if you have called upon the name of the Lord, then you are saved and your future is secure and no one can snatch you from God's hands. So as we close in prayer this morning, I I want us all just to take a moment to be honest with ourselves and to ask ourselves where we stand with God. Have We repented of our sins. Have we turned to Christ for forgiveness? Are we trusting in the righteousness of Christ? Are we trusting in the atoning sacrifice of the cross? Are we knowing that that is our security and our shield on the day of judgment? Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, Spirit of God. Almighty God, you love your people. But you have warned that you would not contend with us forever. We pray, however, this morning that you 
uh, would be patient with us, that you would be merciful, that you would send us your Holy Spirit to show us your truth, reveal to us who you are really. Lord, we confess that we are blind by nature, that we are deceived by our own desires and by our own cultures, by our own biases and prejudices. We pray this morning that you would reveal to us by the power of your spirit who you are. And we pray as well that you would reveal to us who we are. Show us the condition of our heart. Lord, for those of us who do not have faith, we pray that you give us that faith this morning. We pray that you give us the courage to trust you with our lives and with our future. We pray that you give us the courage to walk away from a past that has been filled with chaos and destruction and sin and selfishness. We pray that you give us a a love of your son and a love of your law. We pray that you would turn us toward yourself. And as you turn us toward yourself, as you regenerate our dead spirits, we pray that you would open our lips to proclaim your praise and to call on your name this day. Lord, we can't do it without you. Lord Jesus, hear us now as we pray in the quiet of our hearts. Almighty God, for your amazing grace, we give you thanks. For your eternal word, we give you thanks. And for the gift of your Holy Spirit, we give you thanks. And for the completed work of the cross, we give you thanks. Father God, we turn away from who we have been in the past. And we confess that we are a people with unclean lips and polluted hearts. And this morning we turn to you. And we ask for your mercy and for your forgiveness. We ask for the faith to receive Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and overwhelm us with your joy. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. salvation. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in our worship, and in our lives. Bring honor and glory to yourself. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.